Hello and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Jason Heck, co-hosting again, and today we're dealing with Minute 37, which begins with Sergeant Apone continuing to scan the area with his autofocusing binoculars and ends with Vasquez and the Marines entering the facility. And we have Chris Eliopoulos back with us again today. Thanks for joining us again, Chris. Had to come back. I want to see what happens. Well, yeah, you had to come back because your contract told you. Is that what it is? <laughs> what do you, Harry? What do you, Harry? The bylock. Oh my God! Wow, Jack Warner has a podcast. Look at that, the Harry Cohn of Minute Podcast. Wow! Wow! Everybody else could say I could come and go as I please. You guys, it was like a written contract. I, hey, we we run a tight ship here. That's that's the prestige of the Kansas City podcast and the power it wields over many <laughs> right. in the entertainment and podcasting industries. That's why we're on top. That's why we bludgeon you with our our legal stick. Well, it's good to have you back, man. So we are looking at a at a very very cool scene here, and again, the the suspense that has begun with them debussing—that's the military term from their APC—is really kind of amped up here as we have Gorman trying to run the show, looking at his monitors, and we have a I think the first inkling that Gorman isn't. I mean, we 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 got the vibe when he looked faintly nauseated on the trip down, but now watching him sort of move back and forth in his desk chair, looking at each monitor, trying to coordinate, I sort of had the first inkling that he might be in over his head. This is kind of where I first had it. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I got the, the fact that he was sort of that, the guy in charge, the boss that doesn't know what he's doing while all the other guys below him know what's going on, and he just gets in the way, you know? Yeah, see, I saw this moment as him more having the, the procedural handbook memorized you know he knows exactly what to say i mean he has he doesn't stutter or 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 hesitate at all in giving the orders he knows exactly what to say but it's straight out of the playbook and i kind of see him more as um kind of a game master here than right than a a actual soldier actually even a leader it seems to be you know we kind of talked about it last week that with all the monitors he actually seems to come into his own when he starts looking at the monitors checking everybody's vitals He's much more comfortable than he was when the ship was dropping. So I got the idea, oh, this is our video game guy. This is our gamer uh, uh, commander here. So that's what I get more of that. I'm not sure. I mean, he's in over his head, but he's not even thinking about the actual reality of the situation at all. He's just spouting off procedure. Right. And that to me is when you're clinging to the playbook like that, when you say things like second squad move up flanking positions, that's that's very, you know, that's. That's right out of some military academy handbook. And it seems like because he's clinging to that, yes, I agree with you. He, he's happy to have something to do. And that is part and parcel of this new, this this vibe since they landed of everybody now doing their job. Everybody, with the exception of Ripley, having a job to do. Um, but the way he clings to very orthodox military terminology and the way he sort of robotically spouts it, it doesn't seem like he's really situationally aware. He's just telling them how to do it as if he's looking at uh, at a chart. And that that started to kind of bother me. Like this, you get the vibe that this guy is not going to be able to improvise. Whereas the other guys just automatically know what really. Like they're probably a step ahead of him, knowing what to do. 
and they're just waiting right. for the commander to give the call, like, you know. Right, they've done this probably a hundred times as a squad. They know each other intimately. They've, you know, if you think about a, a you know, a squad of, of dog faces in World War II, they know exactly what the guy next to him is going to do. They know, you know, okay, this guy's the fast one. This guy's the scout. This one's the firepower. This one's the crazy one. And they, they, the squad, you know, we, we already know that he doesn't know him well. He, he muffed Hudson's name. Um, and, and so him doing this, he's, he's sort of moving them like chess pieces as opposed to human beings. Plus, even like you could see, like you said, squad two, you know, Hicks move up and, and like you could see they're almost ready to go before he even calls it. So, right. They over, they've already got it planned. They know where they're going to end up when they know what he's going to say and where they're going to end up. As you put it, they're a step ahead of him the whole time. Yeah, they're really just focused. Like Jason, you mentioned they've done this a bunch of times together, undoubtedly, and even, Apone gives them a little, gives us a little hint at that when he, when they're about to go out and he said, oh, I want a nice clean dispersal this time. Like they're not really thinking, they're not really worrying about Gorman and get, giving the orders. They're worried about just getting the exercise right in their own, you know, under their own standards here. So, um, yeah, I mean, I really, he could have just spoken, he could have said, okay, or said one the first time and they could have, they would have just, they just needed a word from him. They definitely didn't need the, the explicit directions that he's right. giving. They obey Gorman because they have to. They obey Epone because they trust him. Yeah. And they respect Gorman just enough because Apone has to. Like a, a lot of it, you know, you can tell Apone has to kind of, he, he has to be somewhat subservient to Gorman. You know, you see him kind of hovering around behind him. He's got to play ball with him a little bit more, and they know that. Otherwise, I don't think that they would give him even the slightest bit of respect. Which is something right out of Vietnam, right? We had all these these uh, these 90-day wonder second lieutenants showing up and grizzled platoon sergeants really being the ones who kind of kept them alive. They would go over there green as palm olive soap, and it was the platoon sergeants who knew their squads, who knew their fire teams, who kind of took what the new lieutenant said in his with his book learning, like, oh, let's get that machine gun into flanking position. They knew what to look for. They knew how to do it. And again, the Vietnam parallel is very clear here. You know, you've got sort of the, the callow academy, you know, middle class reservist who, who you know, was, was the ROTC guy, basically. And then you have the career soldiers who are going to have to keep him alive and make sure that his orders don't get them all killed. And even Hudson has sort of his finally his moment of other than being a goofball, he kind of knows how to take care of uh, switching on a, a door. Right. right. And what's funny is when if you've watched if you watch this minute very carefully, Epon runs up and bangs the control and he actually is basically saying Hudson run a bypass before he's even taken his finger off the button. So uh, we, here we have Al Matthews sort of maybe jumping the gun in his line delivery when maybe pushing the button one or two times might have sold it a little bit better. But I don't think the audience much cares. Just nerds like me. Yeah, it's like get it done. Yeah, just get it done. Well, that's the thing. The interesting thing too about some of this stuff is, um, so my kids are seventeen right now, going on eighteen, uh, and a number of years ago they're twins, and so uh, I, I want to say maybe when they were fourteen or so, I I showed them Alien, and I thought like this is going to be the big moment. They're going to be scared out of their minds. Like so, I had to sit with them and make sure, and they were bored out of their skull. Wow. And then, yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow, maybe, you know, maybe the storytelling back 20 years ago is different than today. And these kids have grown up with everything so immediate that they lose that. And so maybe a year ago, I had all their friends were over and I said, I, I got aliens. I put it on for them. I said, come on. 
they love Call of Duty. They love the video games. This is like right up their alley. I thought. Yeah. And and they were sitting there with their phones, like, all right, let's go. Uh... And I felt like so these minutes that we're doing right now, um, I, I, I think in today's movies they'd actually be cut out. Like the suspense once is removed from the movies of today. Whereas at that time, that was a big thing. This was like palpable. You were like waiting for something bad to happen. Yeah. Um. And for them, it was a time for them to check their phones. I think you can probably trace that to Michael Bay and Bad Boys. Bad Boys was kind of the beginning of that sort of no shot longer than five seconds. We're going to spoon feed you everything. Everything gets an explanation. There is no room for ambiguity. There is no room for gray and certainly almost no room for suspense. Yeah, and Chris, I think that you're onto something, too, with the Call of Duty. I actually had Call of Duty in my notes here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done this. This isn't new to them. Like walking down a corridor with a gun, yeah, looking for stuff is something they do. They'll do for an hour on end in the game and actually participate in. That's why I, I showed it to them. I thought maybe there was an, an inroad through that video game because they love that stuff. And and it was funny because I right before we talked about the show, I went back to them and asked them, you know, what was your opinion? Did you like the movie? Did you not? What did you like about it? And my son was like, yeah, no, I liked it. It was fine. It was very much like Call of Duty. And I was like, no, no, this was first. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Like he, he's like, they copied Call of Duty. Um, wow. So it goes to show you how, how little the, the the history is is present there. But uh, And that's what it was. A lot of it, you know, you almost feel like this call, these Call of Duty first-person shooters. There was a lot of these moments in these couple of minutes where you see the the soldiers as you know their first person through their headphones, you know, through that through the the the, the, the camera, the video cameras, um, and it felt very much like those video games. So I thought maybe they'd be really into it, but like I said, when it's not when they're not in control, it was kind of boring them. You sound a little bit like a hopeful youth pastor. All right. Hopefully, I could try and reach the kids these this way. I've, I think I've got something for for Sunday. Yeah, it's. I wanted to drink the Kool Aid, but they weren't biting. Now, at this point, you probably need to search their room for drugs, like any parent would. <laughs> it's just it's just what they're you got to do. Yeah, they're video games to do drugs. They're, they're literally sitting upstairs playing video games right now. So it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's that's the thing. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, you know, it's like you you for them today, it's about now, 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 like move, move, move. And like I watch the movies, some of them that they love today, and I go, this is like nothing compared to the storytelling that went back on twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Like. You know, like we talk about, like, you know, there's things that he'll insert in a shot, like coming up, there's things that like you kind of go, oh, there's, you know, why is this there? And it comes back later like that. You kind of miss a lot on in movies today. So, no, no, no. I think so. I think you're and I think you're absolutely right. Like I said, I, I think that there is not a lot of room for ambiguity or suspense in in modern modern filmmaking that is designed to appeal to a mass audience. And I, I think that's why, you know, if you look at Avatar. You know, he, he applied a lot less craftsmanship in terms of storytelling to that than he certainly did to this. He spoon-fed it to us and made it really pretty, like any director in 2008 would. Um, so I think you're right. Even though this sequence, you know, it's it's three minutes, two or three minutes that they're that they're really outside and that they're they're futzing around with the door and all of that stuff. It it, it isn't much time at all. Yet it's time that somebody else. A twenty-year-old today would probably think, "Okay, this is this is dead time. Now is where I need to text my friend and say what seat I'm in and come in and find me." Yeah, I mean, to think about it now, probably the way this scene would have gone in a movie today, you would have seen the dropship landing, and then it would have cut to them coming in that door, like they would have cut out all of this in between, mm-hmm. you know, just to sort of get to the get to the heart of it, which is depressing because you want to see them step by step where they go, you know, right. Um, 
which is interesting because comics is different the way it turns around. So back in the day, comics that's what in in like modern superhero comics back in the day, it was like it was like this. You landed the ship, and next scene was they were in the building. Whereas today they call it deconstructed storytelling, which is you parse out everything. You show how they get off, how they get in, all that kind of stuff. And it's like we've now reversed when it comes to cinema, where it's like cut, like like let's get get to the blowing up, let's go. Hmm. Yeah, I can. I was thinking it's it's interesting that you bring in the, the the comic comparison because I was thinking in a modern film, what you would have is we would have the landing skids hitting, and then we would cut to everybody in operations and Ripley saying something like, "I'm telling you, you did not secure the area," and Gorman saying, "No, no, no, it's secure," and that would have been it. That this whole block of really suspenseful. Kind of nerve-wracking storytelling would have been left on the cutting room. It, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even have been filmed. It wouldn't even have been in the screenplay. Which is interesting, you know. I mean, I for me, maybe because I'm the old man, I, I prefer this type of storytelling. Like, you know, I want to feel a part of this, which it does. You know, you feel like you're in the scene, you know, with the weather and the characters and making their way mud, you know, through the mud to get in there is interesting. And, you know, it's it's dirty and and difficult whereas today maybe that's where they pull from the video games it's like you avoid all of that it's just let's avoid all that nonsense and get right to the you know where that where they're supposed to be getting to so it's also our first chance to really see the marines be marines right to actually do their job and we see that professionalism and see if you had left this if you if they hadn't filmed this we wouldn't have seen gorman in his element right whether or not you guys uh, we all agree that that he was doing a, a bang up job we wouldn't have gotten to see him really doing his good command bit we wouldn't have seen the marines doing marine things being competent clearing a sort of a, a, a potentially hostile building of 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 enemies uh, and you and you wouldn't have gotten the great suspense engine uh that we get next minute i believe of the uh, or a couple minutes of the motion trackers um so yeah it, it would have been a real shame to actually not have this in the movie plus i would say you also learn to like the characters not to spoil anything but you know you start to know who these characters are and so they're i won't say deaths but whatever later on has an impact. Whereas, <laughs> nice ambiguity. I, I, don't, I don't want to spoil it. I'm trying not to spoil it. Nice but, ambiguity. Um, uh, you want to like you want to get to know them a little bit because then it becomes more important later on there how you know how, if they survive or not. And so, right. if you don't have that, it becomes just a video game where these people get picked off and you don't really care because you didn't know them. And uh, not to draw a direct line, but that would be one of the main problems with Covenant. You didn't give two shits about the people really in Covenant uh, because they weren't very well drawn, most of them. And so when, when they started to get offed, a lot of them, you didn't really care. I mean, some of the Marines here, some, well, some of the Marines here obviously exist. You know, the squad is what, 12, I think. So you can't really paint everybody in. Not a lot of us are going to know much about Dietrich or Wierzbowski. Um, you don't get to learn a lot about Spunkmeyer. I mean, there, there are plenty of them who are going to be in there that, that that we don't know a lot about, and yet the one there are enough who are well drawn that that we do care about the group as a whole, right? So if you if you if you if you color in six or seven of them and make it apparent that they all care about their unit, about their brother Marines, sister Marines, fellow Marines, um, then when we start to have casualties, when things start to really hit the fan, you start to care a lot more. And if they were just blank faces we wouldn't have really cared hmm. ja somebody wake up Engel. I, I agree with <laughs> i was just gonna say I, I just agree with everything you guys are saying 
Oh, that's well, a good conversation. That makes for a bad podcast. You're gonna say you disagree, and like, <laughs> I don't know why. I, I wish I could. could. Yeah, I don't even know why I had you guys on. I well, that's why I do the podcast. Really, is validation. You know that angle, and I appreciate it. Uh, uh, well, thank you, thank you for coming on and doing that. For yourself. Well, I appreciate you um, kind of waking up and <laughs> and joining in, and it's great. Well, I did want to talk about we, uh, you know. 30 minutes ago or however long ago it was, we were talking about Hudson running this bypass that mm-hmm. uh, Apone orders him to. I did want to point out that this is also very Cameron-y, this idea of of on-site hacking into something we get uh, very prominently in Terminator 2 later. Wow. It's just one of those little tech things that probably Cameron understands from some sort of a personal level. I mean, I don't mean mean to say that i think james cameron robbed any atm machines or anything i just embedding that in his tech background and his special effects background all the things he did on movie sets he probably understands this idea and seems to be you know kind of focused on it he, he loves the idea of, of of these tech characters and these people that are able to interface with things on site and so on so yeah it's very cameron we're more cameron land more signposts of cameron land here and you know what he's he is he like I said I think at this point in his career he's really he he's very passionate about these things and he's passionate because he he envisions them very fully in his head and he really I'm, I'm sure that he guided his prop makers substantially in how to make the bypass kits like oh I want little alligator clips and stuff I'm sure he did that because if you look at him uh, footage of him like at T two with with. Uzi Gal and, and and doing all the weapons training. There's Cameron shooting the shotgun, and there's Cameron shooting a minigun, and there's Cameron shooting a Beretta ninety three, and all this. And he's completely engulfed in this stuff and creating this reality, which is his reality. And I, I think that is um, that that's why we see these sort of signposts or or repeats from film to film to film um, because he's he's at that part of his life and maybe it might have been the technology that fascinated him we know that he, you know he, he was he was inventing lenses and, and new kinds of, of filmmaking processes during these times so who's surprised that it bleeds over to in front of the camera obviously no one no one is surprised i appreciate that i appreciate that. i'm going to take your silence as tacit agreement I was trying to think of someone who might be surprised, and I couldn't think of anybody. <laughs> Mrs. Cameron. I don't know. <laughs> which, which one? <laughs> all these directors had their bailiwick for a while, right? They all seem to find a little something that they cling on to, and you know, and then they move to the next thing. You know, like Spielberg is always the daddy issues, and mm-hmm. you know, and and now Cameron sort of started off with the aliens and technology, and then moved into underwater. Everything was underwater for a while. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing is, is it brings a perspective in and that's, I guess, another part of the difference in the in the movie business these days is there's no real room in blockbusters for somebody to have a, a unique point of view where they all have to sort of be generic mm-hmm. and similar. Um, and that's what's great about these. Yeah, I was going to say, except for maybe Jason and I were having a conversation about Christopher Nolan earlier and, and maybe mm-hmm. – as flawed of a director as he may be, he might be the only guy out there that's allowed to have this personal vision in a blockbuster anymore, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he so, had to or, he had to make a franchise that made two billion dollars to get the independence to make movies. You know, if you look at his movies, except for The Dark Knight, no one. What, what, what's the formula with blockbusters right now? Someone makes a good one and everybody imitates it. You cannot imitate Inception. You cannot imitate Interstellar. And so, I, I think Nolan, for all of the 
you know, his, his ponderousness. Um, and like I said to John, I think the fact is that, that every one of his movies, you give it a vigorous, vigorous shake and 20 to 25 minutes will fall out. Um, yeah. I, I will say that, you know, Dunkirk, it's not a superhero movie. It's not a franchise movie. It's not giant monsters. He's, he's telling an actual story. He's telling something with meaning. And it may, you know, it may have more meaning to him and to Jonathan Nolan than it's going to have to the rest of us. But at least he's in there trying new things. You know, that's, that's why Mad Max Fury Road was such a shocking slap. You know, Mad Max Fury Road was completely, wildly different. It comes out the same summer as Age of Ultron. And Age of Ultron, guess what? You look at it, and it is this wonderful, nicely, perfectly made cheeseburger of a movie, right? It's it's very competent. It's got moments of wit. It's got a little visual poetry. And then here comes this smoking, bloody sirloin of Fury Road. And it's not towing a company line, and it's not part of Disney's seven-year merchandising program. And, and it just has so much to say. And it is one guy, this 70-year-old wild punk of cinema who still who who waited 15 years to make it and that's why it was so different but now we have just it's all so fearful and so not daring and so and 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 yet it doesn't make money i mean you did we need another pirates of the caribbean probably not and it didn't make much money either and yet you know no one's forcing hollywood to make this stuff no one's putting a gun and saying you know don't don't do really interesting scripts anymore and yet they do and it's total diminishing returns I mean, I think they're making plenty of money. I think actually they're nobody's pointing a gun to their head except maybe the accounting department saying, yeah, yeah, let's keep making these things. Even when people hate them and they're slightly disappointing, we're still, bottom line, doing great. So yeah, but They're saying this know. summer's going to be down 10%. 10% from last summer. But but does that mean they're not making money at all? I, I imagine they're still no, lots of money. But but don't you think they're probably missing the the four point five billion that they're leaving, or four four hundred fifty million that they're leaving on the table? Sure, and we'll see. Maybe they'll. Uh, I I don't know. I felt like that there's been a slight adjustment lately, a little bit more thoughtfulness to to the blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, I need to search of, search your major, room for drugs. <laughs> I mean, you just see. Seen him here, like you said, Mad Max Fury Road. There's a good example. Like they allowed a guy, they gave a guy some money, they allowed him to make a big movie on his own terms. And you know, I think that they, I don't know, I want to think that people are learning in small chunks. We're just not going to see it change one summer after. I mean, we're you got what a what a four year lag in films, you know, being made. You got to wait for the the slate to clear and things to change, you know, that way. We but get like one of those every other year and every other summer, it's basically star fart into crapness, you know, some, yeah. some terrible franchise movie but, that but no star one... fart into crapness made a lot of money. You know? Not that much though. What's Not, you know, it... what are you talking about? that's, that's, that's what I, that's what I meant. Right. I mean, it was, it, <laughs> even though it was toilet paper, at least it was two ply. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, that seems to be the thing all the way through, isn't it? The, is, Hollywood's scared to take chances, so they stick to franchises that are well-known. And even like you said, Mad Max, it's a franchise that people are aware of. It's got a name yeah. recognition. Yeah. So you're able to go in because nobody really cared about it at, at this point. It, it was you know 25 years in the past. So, um, you know, an alien – I mean, look at it. A lot of the stuff we're talking about is all properties, and you're not looking – I mean, Inception obviously being a, 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 an outlier, but – you know, a lot of these now, it's just it's a name property that you want to put a new rubber stamp on and say, here's the next version of this. You know, I mean, so. seriously, we get a Baywatch and a Chips movie like two months apart. Really? That's that's not, you know, to, to quote Julian Glover, is that the limit of your vision? I mean, seriously, that's it's just safe. It's uh, safe, though. That's uh, the thing. They think a name like that is going to guarantee a certain amount of money. 
and that's why they keep putting them out is because a certain amount of people will recognize the name and just go see it for the name. Everything, I mean, across the lines, I mean, you look at politics, it's name recognition for a lot of it. It's it's popularity. It's who who is known best. Mm. And I think it's the same thing with this stuff. If you see a Star Trek, people go, well, I know what I'm going to get with a Star Trek, or I know what I'm going to get with a Star Wars. I'm not looking for high art. I'm looking for what I know I can. And it, like I said, it happens over in comic books, too. You know, we put out books that we know are going to get a certain amount of sales. Nobody is really pushing the limit of what these books can be because the you know the retailers want to make sure they make their sales so uh they're complicit in it and i think the movie theater owners are the same way we want to make sure that we get a certain amount of money and these properties will guarantee that whether or not they're good art doesn't matter as long as yeah. they sell yeah yeah are but... we talking about aliens what are we talking about today uh we we're talking about this frank miller's the spirit uh oh boy uh... It's just I don't get the Nazi thing, but that's fine. That's fine. Well, how about if we just uh, move on to tomorrow and we can get back to talking about aliens again? <laughs> we'll just again. talk about other movies. Good? All right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for minute 37. Uh, Chris, you want to remind everyone where they can find you on the internet? Um, you can find me at Chris Eliopoulos on Twitter and go to Amazon.com. You can find a bunch of my books that are available, and especially I've got a new one. July 4th came out, and uh, – it's about my sons, and it's going to help pay for their college. So please pick up a copy. More money into Eliopoulos' bloated coffers right there. Darn right. <laughs> right there. All right. Well, you can find us at AlienMinute.com, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. We also have a virtual tip jar on on the website, AlienMinute.com. Just drop a couple bucks in there if you feel like it. It would help us pay for some expenses. All right. Well, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 38.